Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gercheck. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Chad Brown to our show. Dr. Brown is the president of Zane State College in Zanesville, Ohio. Hey, Chad, how are you doing today? I'm glad to have you on the podcast. I'm doing very well. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, it's always uh, fun to get the opportunity to, to um, kind of commiserate and, and talk about uh, the, the, uh, the crazy future I think we're dealing with in higher education right now. Yeah, that's that's probably the best way to put it for sure. It is it is going to be a crazy future. Um, well, first, let's talk a little bit about your college and why students select your institution. Well, why students select our institution as a as a uh, a small uh, rural community college is many of them are place bound. They're looking for career opportunities, um, and to be honest, I think. That's something we've kind of just decided to lean into. I think for, for years, community colleges, from their structure to their offerings, um, have really tried to be many universities, and, and we're not. And that doesn't serve us well and doesn't serve our communities well. Um, so while we um, were one of the first community colleges in the state of Ohio to offer a, a baccalaureate degree, um, we also lean... Um, heavily into understanding that our main job is to provide the education necessary for people to get um, good jobs, well-paying careers. And ultimately, at the end of the day, by being a rural community college, um, we are in Appalachia, Ohio, about an hour east of Columbus. And it's a, it's an area known oftentimes for high poverty, low unemployment. Um, I think the city that we are in, Zanesville, Ohio, has been described for better than half a century as a city at risk, whatever that means. And um, I try to remind our faculty and our staff every day that for every student who's successful, that's um, work we're doing to combat infant mortality and, you know, just... Um, uh, issues around social determinants of health. So um, we kind of proudly carry that uh, two-year college banner. Good, good for you. You know, and I agree. A lot of the, a lot of community colleges try to become little mini universities, and you know, it's like know your audience. Your your students coming to you for because they want to come to a community college. So sure, yeah. And you know, the interesting part is in two thousand seven, we were actually founded as a technical college in the state. There are several different. Of varieties. Um, and really today, the only thing it does is determine how your board is selected and from whether it's has some local inclusion or can be statewide. Um, but in 2007, 2008, we received the um, approval both from Higher Learning Commission and the state to offer the transfer degrees. And I think everybody thought we were going to become like every urban institution and 50% of our students were going to be seeking transfer. And it's an important part of our mission, but you know the people who are doing it tend to be um, mostly students from families who already have financial means. They understand that value, 
And so we do have some mission expansion to do in that area. But what we found over time is by just making sure that our, our technical programs are vested in quality and that we can, through um, uh, articulation agreements, actually provide just as good or better transfer ability than uh, focusing on the uh, Associate of Arts and Associate of Science degrees. Yeah, well, good. Um, what's new on campus? Oh, new on campus. Well, um, there's a lot in physical facilities that are new. Um, one of the things we're trying to do, like most community colleges, uh, we started, uh, most of our construction started in the 70s, and many of our buildings showed it. You walked into um, dark brick hallways like the brick behind me on this wall, but yet both sides would be that, and you'd have quarry tile on the floor. And so what we've really done is we've stepped back and said, ultimately, you know, it seems everywhere you go, there are new facilities and they're just incredibly posh. Um, the My background is actually in athletics. And um, I am, uh, most people in Ohio don't like to hear this, but I am a Michigan fan. Um, I uh, worked for the University of Michigan football program back in the 90s. And every time I see what that locker room looks like now in that stadium, compared to what it looked like in the 90s. You know, it's just a different world. So everybody's focused on physical facilities. So we've spent um, really probably close to $2 million in renovation of all of our hallway spaces, common spaces, classrooms, just kind of bringing everything up to a certain standard and really focusing on brand and environment and just making our students feel at home. Uh, the other thing we've really been focused on is safety. So even though we are a rural college, um, in some ways, I think that makes us a little more, uh, could be our own worst enemy from the perspective of thinking about campus safety. So we've over the last year transitioned from, I think there are 56 doors that we counted on this campus that were unlocked all the time to this past year we moved to each of our five buildings on campus have one open access point. Everything else is uh, key card access. And then um, we will actually be going to a full key card access only um, a little later on this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, you guys are stepping it up for sure. I I, I never want to be that president that has to have that that conversation. And, you know, my heart goes out to anyone who's had to deal with that. And we actually uh, have a uh, contract with our local uh, sheriff's office to have a, a deputy who's on campus. Uh, uh, you know, he's on campus by a bicycle. He's on campus by a um, squad car. And so his, he's certainly visible. But with seven buildings on this campus, if there were an incident, you know, that leaves about a 15% likelihood that he would be wherever that could uh, happen. So we want to make safety a, a, a very big priority. Plus, like most community colleges, we're seeing a greater influx of high school age students. So, you know, your parents are concerned about how, um, how well their students are going to do on campus. And so... Um, it's just been uh, part and parcel of what we're trying to do here. So you're doing a lot of dual enrollment then? 
We do. So we've been doing dual enrollment for about 15 years. Um, there was an initiative in the state a few years ago, well, 15 years ago, called, uh, I think, Seniors to Sophomores. How can you help more of these seniors get some initial college credit? In 2015, I think it was, Ohio um, got a, an official statewide program called College Credit Plus. So about 50% of our total headcount is College Credit Plus students, without accounting about 35% of FTE. Um, now, I would say that's, the, let's say that's roughly a thousand students. Of those thousand, there's probably 250 that are here on campus that are um, full-time degree-seeking students. And then um, you've got uh, the others who are, many of which are out in high schools with credentialed faculty who use, um, you know, our syllabus, our Blackboard system. And uh, so... It's it's been a, a very interesting um, phenomenon to watch that grow. Yeah. How has your college adapted to the changing landscape of higher education, including, of course, technology now? Technology, I think, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on whether it's working for you at the time, I guess, drives everything that we're doing. Um, for us as a, uh, again, a small institution. Um, we've uh, relied heavily on Title III over the years. So back around uh, 2000, a Title III grant allowed us to move from our old mainframe system to, uh, um, to the Genzabar system. And we just recently upgraded our Genzabar system to a, what they're calling J1. It's a cloud-based uh, software as a service system. And, um, you know, that's really, I'm excited by that because our college has been involved with the, the Achieving the Dream initiative since 2005. And we've always kind of been a leader on the student success end of things. And so clear back in 2007, 2008, we were envisioning how we can use technology. And we were one of the first schools to review Starfish at the time. And um, for us as an institution, because Starfish at that time really didn't connect into the curricular part of it, it just wasn't worth the, the financial investment for us to, to do that. And what I see technology now is finally reaching the point where there's that integration of the communication systems and the ability to manage student information and student data as it relates to a curriculum or a plan of study. So with this implementation of the J-1, we're really excited about that opportunity for us. Oh, good. You know, I haven't thought about Starfish forever. That was <laughs> that's that was a few years ago. So yeah, that's kind of interesting how you put it in perspective as far as how, how everything is kind of growing in uh, or has grown from that uh, uh, Starfish platform. Well, and it, you know, it's an important thing because as an institution, we have... Um, We've traditionally been a high achieving institution. Our graduation rate, um, our most recent uh, three-year graduation rate is 54%. Um, so as a community college, when the state average is about 17% for that same time period, um, we're doing something right. But when I look back over the 18 years that I've been here, 
there have been a couple things consistent with the data, and that is a graduation rate that toggles usually between 40 and 50%, and a first-year retention rate that never gets much better than about 50%. So for me, um, I have really challenged our, our staff and our employees just to say, that tells me two things. One, we have some legacy issues here. We've got to figure out what they are. And I said, second, we believe that we're welcoming and all of our students seem to tell us how welcoming we are. But I would suggest that for 50% of our population, maybe they don't feel quite that way. So just constantly thinking about how we re-engage our student um, around our three areas of focus, which is uh, stewardship of our limited resources that we have, a focus on quality as defined by retention and graduation, and, and then finally, um, equity, and just making sure that we are using those finite resources as best as possible to create as strong outcomes for each group of students who participate in our college activities. Well, how is your college preparing students for today's workforce? Well, I think we prepare them for today's workforce by, by starting to envision what tomorrow's workforce is going to look like. So we have the, uh, uh, the unique advantage of being about 35 to 40 miles from where the new Intel development is happening. So it is happening one county west of us. And um, so we know there's going to be growth. Um, it's just really understanding how, how all of this comes together because we find ourselves in a time right now where we're, we've got industry saying to us, hey, we need a bigger pipeline, but they're going right to the high schools and competing with us for the very same students that we're trying to build into that pipeline. So I think the first thing to prepare students for today and tomorrow's workforce is getting the companies to recognize that collectively for us to be successful, and when I say us, I mean our communities to be successful, we need to find a way to help these students be full-time students as well as full-time employees. And you know that can be done through learn and earn in multiple different venues, but there has to be the motivation. I would say three or four years ago, there wasn't strong motivation on the parts of the industry to help with apprenticeships and all that, you know, because it's just, it was too restrictive for them. And, and now it's, it's a totally different ballgame. So yeah. I think recognizing, the other thing is just recognizing that changes are, are really our only constant. And um, kind of that, back to that mini university approach, when we add a new program, I don't think we should add those program expecting it's going to exist in perpetuity. I think we need to um, look at programming opportunities and answer a couple questions. And one is, you know, what's what's the life cycle of this? And then the second question is, will we be able to turn a profit on it given a particular life cycle? And then the third question is, does that even matter? So there's sometimes where we're having to embrace things almost as a loss leader concept because it's it's part and parcel to our mission. And, and we are having that struggle right now with the healthcare programs. 
Um, for, for years, I think healthcare programs for um, community colleges in particular have really been the, the cash cow. Not because of the students in the program, but all the students who want to get in the program. So by those programs being limited capacity and therefore more selective, you create that wait list. Well, in today's environment, that wait list is either non-existent or not nearly as strong as it was. So that changes the whole business calculus. And so I don't have a single allied health program that actually turns a profit. Um, but I know this much about our community that two organizations that, that cannot fail for our community to be successful. One is the healthcare system. And then the second is us who prepares the, the, the workers for those jobs. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I know the public, that's hard for them to understand is why can't you just take more students? It's like, well, you have, there's only so many spots to put them. You know, the Board of Nursing has something to say about this. It's just a tough gig to just turn more students out. Yeah, and and there is a certain level of quality that students need to be able to perform. And so one of my things is, as an open access community college, I absolutely believe that every student who walks through our door is capable of doing college level work. Now, what is that work? It's not the same for everybody. Uh, you know, some people aren't going to be as successful in the allied health and some people aren't going to be as successful in the engineering ranks. But it's helping them find what they can succeed at, what they're interested in, and where we can take resources and add to that uh, to help create a successful uh, opportunity for those students. Well, well, here's a here's a question that's always kind of hard to answer because I know you just don't want to talk about one or two students, but do you have any success stories of alumni who's made a significant impact in their professions? Everyone who goes to a a major university, or even in particular the, the private liberal arts colleges, you know, they've all got that graduate. Like we're not far from Denison University, and Michael Eisner graduated from there. You know, so um, I cannot put my finger on any specific graduate like that. But what I can talk about is the collective whole. We know that 75% um, of our 13,000 graduates that we've had at this college live and work within um, driving distance of, of our college. We've, um, we've done an economic impact study and we know that the college and our graduates generate about $150 million in economic activity for the 10 county region that, that we work in. Um, and when you hear their individual stories, they are, they are inspiring. They really are. Some of the, when I, when I talk to a student and, and you just can't believe what you're hearing, that a, a student um, had one whose mother actually sold her into um, human trafficking, sexual slavery, um, started smoking, marijuana with her when she was 12 and 
um, got her addicted. And so when you hear these challenges and these struggles, um, they're not they're not putting their names on buildings, but they are the reason and the inspiration that every one of our employees come to work every day. It, it sure sounds like if your students are sticking around and they're meeting the needs of the community, huh? Yeah, they, they are. And, um, you know, I think that's the wonderful thing about a community college because, I mean, we've all, if we grew up in a small town at all, we all know that we, that's the last place in the world we want to live. Um, I didn't grow up here, but my wife did. And um, where we lived prior to me taking this job is where I grew up. So I tell everybody we moved from the last place I said I would ever, ever live to the last place my wife said she would ever live. But, you know, I think it's fun to help them turn that conversation around. And, and uh, for me, the most interesting part of doing this job in a rural college is I'm not just the president of the college. Um, the role is so much bigger. So as an example, I serve on um, a, a foundation that um, over the last eight years, I've had the opportunity to oversee the investment of $6 million of infrastructure and program support back into the community. So, you know, I think those of us who are older, we have an obligation to help the young people understand that they can make their community what they want it to be. And with the Intel investment and the growth we're gonna see here, um, I don't think that's ever been more true. Well, you know, in regards to alternative credentialing, how do you see micro-credentials impacting the future of higher ed? In both good and bad ways. Um, so the good way is I think it gives us a real opportunity to do just what I was talking about earlier, where how do we help these students who are graduating from high school, these students who may not wanna necessarily live here, how do we help them recognize that there's an opportunity to get a good paying job right now? Balance that with continuing to invest in your own education, your own development, and launch that into a career that opens pathways that they can't even envision. Um, so, that allows us to have that conversation with those students, but in particular, it allows us to have the conversation conversation with the, the employers. But I think long-term, particularly for community colleges, if they hang their hat on the, um, uh, the short-term credentials, unless they're gonna have about five, 10 times the influx of students, then I don't know how that financial model makes sense. And at the end of the day, we have to talk about the business calculus of all of this because we have a mission and it's hard to serve that mission if we can't stay in business. So since, since you've moved there, I think you became president, why is that 2015? Yes. So what's some of the biggest lessons you've learned so far as an academic leader? Culture change really does take at least seven years. Um, I had a, um, I had one of my 
longtime HR folks tell me that my most important job as president was the care and feeding of the culture that I want to create. And um, to me, that, that creates a real challenge in doing this job because in particular, again, small, rural, everybody knows everybody. Plus I was in the provost role for eight years before being here. You know, you just can't step into that new role and exit from the college, um, especially if you're trying to shape and maintain a culture. Um, so that's been the real eye-opener to me is how difficult it has been to both step away and do the external stuff, but also stay involved on a campus level while letting new people grow into those roles. Yeah, you know, when you when you talk about stepping away, how do you stay connected with your students on campus? I try to stay as active and, and um visible as possible. Um, for We offer first-year experience classes, and I, I speak to all of those students. I go into those classes and, and just welcome them, uh, encourage them to stop by, um, just try to be visible. For me, and, and not long before I uh, took over as president, I started having some uh, some issues with my gait. And long term, over the next several years, what I learned I had was a condition called dystonia. And so I tried to be honestly very private about it early on and like, um, you know, pretended like people couldn't see. I, I kind of... Uh, I kind of joked about it similar to, you know, what they did with FDR where back in the day they would, you know, put his uh, braces on him and basically wheel him in and prop him up there. It's like everybody didn't look while that was going on. Um, but instead, again, another situation where I just decided to lean into it, own it. And because of that, it is, um, it's really kind of opened up my world to the students. They, they come up and talk and, um, the other thing that I've done, and you can't tell it today because we have a board meeting, we've um, we've embraced a policy of called dress for your day. Um, and so probably two or three days a week, I'll be in a pair of jeans and a, and a, a college t-shirt or sweatshirt or whatever. And, um, it's just really created an opportunity to engage students different. I really like that. I like that you're you're, you're, you're leaning into that. And it seems like it's building a great relationship then with your students. It, it has. And, you know, it's created buy-in with the, the faculty and staff. And we have a, we have a vision statement that we, we built a few years ago and we did it collectively because when I, when I stepped into the role as president, I refused to, you know, to give the big speech, here's my vision and all that, because my vision was just that it's my vision. But for it to be successful, particularly the small institution, um, I find that people can be, the, bu the bureaucracy of the small institution may be more difficult to break up than the bureaucracy of a large organization. And um, so I was not willing to say, this is my vision. I wanted the college to come up with that. 
And it really took until about the fifth year, fourth year of my presidency, our vision statement is a promising future for everyone. And when you see it, it, it may look like we don't know how to spell here in Appalachia, but everyone is separate because it's an emphasis on everyone, student, everyone, interaction. And I really focus on trying to make sure that as college employees, we're always present. We have, there, there's no more important place to be than where we are right now, particularly if we're engaging with another human being. And so, you know, that involves trying to put away the cell phones and turn off the dings and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, uh, how is your college incorporating community service and civic engagement in the educational process? Well, for a number of our accredited programs, that's kind of an easy thing because it's an expectation. We have to document that. Um, for many of our programs, though, it, it, it is more difficult. Um, we try to do um, as much as possible by, um, we have a Rotaract Club, um, which is uh, connected to the local Rotary organization. Um, we um, all of our different programs have clubs associated with them where they do road cleanup and things like that. Plus, as a college, we actually give all of our employees um, four hours a month of community service leave that they can take, and we encourage them all to do it. So our visibility in the, in the community is an important thing to us, and we feel that we kind of live it as an example for our students. Well, here's my last question. What advice would you give to a prospective student and their family when choosing the right college or university for their education? I think the advice starts with getting away from the old conversation of, hey, you're smart, you should go to a four-year institution. Because I think we do people a disservice um, you know, you've got the kid who likes math and we say, hey, you got to go be an engineer. But I don't think we ever step back to say, you know, what is it you like to do? Where would you like to be? And um, There's a big difference between being an engineer and being an engineering technologist who's out in the field and doing those kind of things. So for me, it really starts with making sure that you, you understand what you like. Don't have any preconceived notions. And then you've also got to lay out on the table, what are your goals? I mean, if your goals are to do this affordably, um, you know, what are the scholarship opportunities? And um, at the end of the day, it also comes down to fit. Um, we have a, a program I'm very proud of here that is uh, for those dual enrolled students. And each year, about 40 students graduate as seniors in high school they'll graduate from here as well with their associate degree in engineering technology. And, um, you know, that's just pretty amazing because many of these young folks will go away to work right away. Last year, I know we had uh, uh, six graduates of that were uh, that program went to uh, a local Boeing uh, a manufacturing facility and, uh, uh, started at over $65,000, you know, 
these are they just graduated from high school, and we actually had one that started over eighty thousand dollars. And so I think helping students know the possibilities and, and what's out there, and and it's it's not just the way that you and I remember it. So much has changed. I mean, one of my struggles in the classroom, and when I really realized that I had lost perspective was when I went into a high school, it's like, oh, you have smart boards too? <laughs> the truth of the matter is most of these kids come from high schools that have way better facilities than, than what we have. That's that's an excellent point, <laughs> yeah. But I will tell you, I did, I did convince my son he needed to go through that engineering tech program. And so at the end of the day, he told me the only thing he learned was he didn't want to be an engineer. But... Um, you know, take the time, talk, and and it's got to be the right fit. I've always said students know if you just let them, you know, kind of be themselves, they know when they walk onto a campus, they, they get a feel. And, and if they don't, you know, as long as I think parents are engaged and, you know, we don't... Um, don't jump into the frozen lake head first without knowing, I guess, that there's nothing you, you can't recover from. So, and that's the other thing I, I really love about Same State College and what I've, what we've done here for the last 18 years that I've been here as an employee is that, you know, we're about second chances. We're about opportunities for everybody. And it's, it's really cool to see, you know, the, the students through that engineering tech program who are also the, all the local valedictorians, but you see people who have this just amazing story of overcoming things and, and they never had anyone uh, who, uh, who necessarily believed they would be here. I was watching one of the, I think it was last night's NFL game, and they were talking about one of the players who wore uh, number zero. And somebody actually asked him, why do you wear zero? He said, because it represents a number of people who ever gave me a chance. That is, I didn't see that. That's, that's a, a wonderful way to end our show today. Um, Chad, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Um, have, a, have a wonderful day. And I hope wherever you are, it's sunny and uh, wonderful outreach. <laughs> well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time.